Welcome to another episode of the Brothers F Bookcast. This time we are joined by a guest, uh, Rob Smith. Hey, Rob, how you doing? Great, glad to be here, Paco. You want to uh, introduce yourself to folks? Sure. Well, I met Paco in law school. We were section mates. Uh, we are now living in different parts of the country, but glad I was able to join the podcast today. Um, we're both working as attorneys. Yes. Well, so what? You, what's? Uh, I was I was about to say what's your deal, Rob? But I guess you kind of uh, preempted that question, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm just uh, working in Washington D.C. as an attorney, but my spare time I do like reading, and so. Uh, okay. Paco asked, "Hey, do you want to uh, jump on the Brothers F?" I was like, "Yeah, let's do it." What kind of stuff do you like to read? Well, I've have been reading. I don't know this about you at all. Like, I know you play piano. I know you like jazz. That's right. Well, I compose a little bit of piano music. It tends to be somewhat impressionistic. Uh, but for the time being, in terms of reading, I have been getting into a little bit of nonfiction. I will admit. That's uh, fine. We do nonfiction on the pod. Yeah, I, I recently read The Looming Tower, which was about the rise of Al Qaeda in nine eleven. Oh yeah, by that guy uh, Lawrence Wright. Am I butchering his name? No, that's that's exactly it. He's written a couple other books, uh, mostly investigating uh, cults or religions that have some sort of influence on culture. So he wrote a book about Scientology, which I have not read, but uh, the the book it was great. I mean, I learned a lot about Al Qaeda, some of the mistakes that were made in the lead up to nine eleven. I'm also Finishing up uh, Dune, which is a science fiction novel um, that many listeners might be familiar with. Damn, Rob. Yeah, that's a good, that's a famous book. I haven't I haven't read it, but um, interesting. So, say so, you know, I'm in, I'm impressed. Uh, you know, I'm impressed that you make time to read with your, uh, you know, the kind of legal job you have. It's it's a, it's in. You know, it's somewhat, uh, it's uh, impressive is the wrong word, but, you know, it's it's admirable, I, th- I would say. Maybe that's the right. Well, sure. But I will admit a lot of these books are just sitting on my nightstand, right? Waiting yeah. for bed. So I have a couple that I'll keep in the queue. And then when I do finish something, there's always that sense of accomplishment. So, You know, it's funny because I think so much of being an attorney is about digesting bad writing. So, like, the transition to good writing can be a little jolting. Yeah, no, I agree with that. You know, like, I can't, like, I can't, like, <laughs> I can't, I can't read this unless it's filled with, like, you know, unnecessary legal jargon and, uh, <laughs> right, right. Over long <laughs> sentences. And it's, if it's not about something incredibly dry and obscure, I just, you know, I don't have time for it. <laughs> so, obviously, obviously, you like Dickens, and we can get into that in a little bit. But other than Dickens, who are your who are your favorite authors? Ooh, that's a tough question. Well, I will say that I very much enjoy the Harry Potter series, which you mentioned. Yeah. It shouldn't be the first one that comes to mind. Uh, I, I actually like. Um, I'm going to butcher the name. That's why I hesitated. There's an author named Emmanuel Carrere, um, who is a French author. Um, he has written uh, a book called The Adversary. He also ha- has a book that uh, I am not quite done um, with, but The Kingdom. And it's they, they tend to be somewhat uh, a, a journalistic approach to different subjects, but the author will insert himself into the story. So while he is pers- uh, investigating something like, for example, Christianity, which is what the kingdom is about, who also discuss his own spiritual development. Uh, I think he's good. I, in terms of novels, uh, C.S. Lewis is, uh, I think, is, is pretty great, and he also has a lot of great nonfiction work as well. I like anyone read widely, and so I tend to like certain books more than authors that I return to again and again. I would also, though, in terms of essays, would highly recommend uh, Theodore Dalrymple, who, that's a pen name. His real name is Anthony Daniels, but I think he is one of the best essayists we have today. Um, He is 
a psychiatrist, but he is also a very astute cultural observer. And so anything written by him, it's, it's a must read. Nice. Nice. Okay, cool. Um, so what, why do you like Dickens? What's, 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 I mean, I like Dickens too, but I, I like Dickens cause I like, I'm sentimental about a Christmas Carol, but I want to hear why you like Dickens. Sure. Well, I think for me, there's a little bit of a backstory as well, right? We all, um, are familiar with a Christmas Carol in high school. We read great expectations. Well, I came to Dickens, um, a little bit later in life. Um, a couple years ago, I found an old copy from the 1930s, at least, uh, of David Copperfield and, David Copperfield is Dickens' probably most loved work. It's very um, autobiographical in some sense. But a couple years ago, I I found this book, started giving it a read, and I was carrying it around everywhere, right? And it is a long book. It's nearly 900 pages. People would see me with this old copy of the book. They're asking, why don't you just have this on Kindle? This sort of thing. (laughs) It took me a time to read, and yet... The characters really, really stick with you. I think that what makes David Copperfield in particular so great is that it's very true to life. In one sense, as I noted, it's true to um, Dickens' own life. You know, David Copperfield is the initials DC. It's uh, CD, um, Charles Dickens flipped, right? And a number of the anecdotes in the novel are drawn from his own experiences. And it's true to the Victorian era where um, the novel set, you know, the, the rise of the modern middle class, um, high society and the focus on propriety, perhaps hiding at times, uh, the lack of morality in those institutions. But more than anything, I think it's true to life in a more general sense. I think we've all encountered the sort of characters that you'll find in David Copperfield, whether it's uh, the sycophant Uriah Heep or um you know, a, a simpler character like Peggotty. David Copperfield is a novel that people return to again and again for the characters. Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, I definitely get that. Um, <laughs> so, y- y- how uh, how big was this book? So, my copy is nearly nine hundred pages. Um, the it, it's it's big enough that. Most people would not be carrying it around on the subway, but I think what really drew a couple friends' attention is that it's this. The copy I had was an old one, and I also had it around for a while. I'll admit, this book, as much as I love it, did take me quite some time to read, and so people would see me with the copy and ask, "What? Wait, you're still reading David Copperfield?" And you know, the answer is yes, but I stuck with it, and I'm very glad I did. Um, nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that where 1930s, where did you did you find it in a bookstore or did you find it like an attic or something or No, you know, I think it was uh, in my family. I, I don't know exactly where it came from. Um, my uh, grandmother might have had it, but you know, it, there's a, a little annotation in the opening page it says February 1935 and that's all I really know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is it, it's like haunted. The experience of reading David Copperfield all the better, right? Because yeah. you have this old book. Um, you are entering a time, I think, that in our somewhat like homogenized digital culture feels both foreign but also very uh, alive and, and real. As I said, we have all encountered the sort of characters that you'll find in David Copperfield. You know, it's funny because I read it on my phone. I'm feeling like maybe I uh, I made a mistake now. <laughs> um, no, no. I think, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where reading is – the setting matters, but you can always escape into the words themselves. And so, you know, just like reading it in itself I think is something <laughs> to appreciate. I think it's different. I think it's. I think it, the experience of a book is different, whether it's on a screen or on a uh, in a you know in a, in a book. Or uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I disagree, right? I mean, that's why I, you know, I do get pr- print publications. Um, 
I prefer reading. I love old book smell. Uh, there's something about it, but you know, we, and part of it for me might just be the fact that we spend so much time on screens for our day jobs. At least I do. Oh, for sure. It's terrible. It, it's, it's just, it's, it's, uh, I, I kind of think that the, uh, lawyers who came up before the advent of uh, the internet kind of had a, a cushier deal than they know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, no, you, you know, it's funny. I, I was able to read the, the novel a lot faster than you, um, because it was on my phone. Like I, w- I wouldn't fall asleep reading it, for example, like I do when I'm reading a book, mm-hmm. but it does, uh, I don't know. I, I would say it hits a little different when you're reading on a phone. Yeah. Um, well, I think, um, you know, for me, another thing that made the book interesting at that time in my life you know, David Copperfield is... Well, for context, when was this? So this was shortly before I met you, actually. Um, I was living and working in Washington, D.C., but prior to law school, uh, I had left college, but, you know, I had my first job, was, uh, you know, just starting out. And, it, you know, th- this novel, it's it's a coming-of-age story in a way, right? It, it shows... David from his birth until uh, adulthood and you know marriage and children. So it, I thought it was the perfect time to to read a book like that and to see uh, how it affected my life. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess it would be you're sort of in the right. Though I don't think you had a. Uh, I hope you didn't have a David Copperfield esque childhood. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, not at all. Well, why don't we uh, give the listeners a sense of what this book is about? Um, yeah, for sure. David is is born sort of already half an orphan. His father his father is dead when he's born, and his his uh, eccentric uh, aunt is there, kind of really expecting a girl and hoping for a girl. And when he's born a boy, she leaves in a huff. And, uh, you know, shortly afterwards, his mother, uh, you know, the, it marries this dude, who, uh, you know, and, and then he has a typical sort of Dickensian on the nose, nose name, uh, Murderstun, Murderstone, one of those two. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah, he's not a good dude. Like he makes the mother miserable. He makes uh, young David Copperfield miserable. He, he in fact, he, he, you know, it, it comes to a head. He beats the he beats the kid, and, and uh, David Copperfield bites him, so he gets sent away to this awful, uh, awful boarding school, uh, <laughs> which is not a where I you know I would say he's kind of equally unhappy. Um, yeah, well, especially the headmaster of Salem House, his David's first boarding school has another Dickinsonian name. Mr. Creakle. Mr. Creakle. Yeah. yeah you know, you know, I didn't even I didn't even think about that, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. another yeah, that's funny. Mr. How did I miss that one? Uh Mr. Creakle, yeah. Uh, well he yeah, so um he's not he's he's not there for too long. I mean he does he does end up working in a in a factory. That's um, right. Also due to his stepfather, Mr. Murdstone. But there is something that occurs while he's working there, which is he meets uh, a big character in the novel, uh, Mr. Micawber, who is constantly getting into debt, uh, and yet his wife is ever loyal. And this is a character who um, comes up throughout the novel. Uh, you know, But I think it's not until David re-encounters uh, Betsy Trotwood, his aunt, that he really starts um, you know, coming into at young adulthood, or at least uh, you know he ha- he has a much better life. So he he goes and um, lives with his aunt, who also has uh, a gentleman with her named Miss- Mr. Dick, who is, his full name is Richard Babley, but he is he's insane. Exactly. Right, right. So he's always working on his memorial, uh, but he's distracted by the thoughts in his head. And I think, you know, he he enjoys uh, flying kites. It's another one of these characters that is unforgettable. But, but yeah, Miss, uh, Betsy Trotwood also then arranges for 
David to go live with Mr. Wickfield um, while he's studying. And it's there that he meets Agnes, who really becomes uh, one of the, the saviors of sorts in the novel. The woman who should have been his first wife. That's right. And I think one of the, uh, the things that happens over the course of this novel, and, and in some ways what it's really about, the very first line of David Copperfield it reads as follows. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life, or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. And so he has a number of people who mentor him or who uh, save him, right? His his aunt, um, he, you, you know, he, Agnes, who um, he, he initially marries, uh, his his child bride as that as uh, I think they put it though um, she is of age Dora um, his child wife and she is uh, well, I think we need a little more context there because she's not just uh, a creepily named child bride she's also his boss's daughter that's right that's right no, that's a great point yeah so he goes out and he um, he is working for a lawyer uh, but Dora Spenlow is his boss's daughter. And he is smitten. Well, you know, they eventually do marry. And I don't know, Paco, how much are we giving away here in the podcast? It's it's fine. There, these podcasts all, like, I, I've been saying spoiler alert so long, but there's an implicit spoiler alert with all of these. Just just have the conversation, let it be natural, and don't worry too much about, about spoiling it. I mean, it's, it's look, this book was published in the 19th century. Right. People should probably know. <laughs> yeah. If this were something that just coming out in 2020, 2021, I'd say, all right, let's, let's, uh, let's pump the brakes, but it's Dickens. It's his most famous novel. You've been warned. <laughs> right. Well, then to get back to it, you know, another character that we forgot to mention, and, and these characters recur again and again throughout the novel is Steerforth who is a boy that he meets initially at Salem House, the boarding school. And he kind he of... admires him, but he's, yeah, not, he's, not, he's not a good dude. That's right. I mean, he, he takes David... He's got, a, he's got a hardcore man crush on him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, David is, looks up to this guy, and yet later in life sees Steerforth's true colors. You know, it's hard to in, encapsulate this book in, in just a quick summary, but what and we, we don't have to, we just have to orient people a little bit. We're not going to necessarily get cover every plot point, but we want to give people a flavor of it at least. Sure. Well, I think that, you know, steer when David really realizes what his association with Steerforth has done is when Steerforth runs off with little Emily, who is, a, uh, a relative of Mr. Peggotty, a relative of Clara Peggotty, his former housekeeper. And this betrayal is really quite something. You know, Emily had meant to be married to, married to Mr. Peggotty's nephew, Ham. And so Steerforth is basically responsible for stealing her away while not recognizing... Um, what this really means for a family of poor means, you know, Steerforth is from a family of means, and he simultaneously has been, I would say, um, teasing or ignoring uh, his his mother's aide, uh, Rosa Dartle. And there's a lot of tension, I think, between the two of them. It's kind of one of these uh, interesting parts of the novel. But he instead runs away with Emily and ultimately disgraces her but there is redemption i yeah i think that as we get towards the novel's end another character um this time not coming uh from a, you know upper society but from from the low uriah heap the assistant of mr wickfield then begins to plot to take down mr wickfield and uh you see you know villains both from different portions of society. But in the end, um, the, the day is saved 
And there is redemption. Um, Emily, together with Peggy and others, including even Mr. Macabre, they head to Australia for a new life. And David, um, he unfortunately loses Dora and yet realizes who he was truly meant to marry, which is Agnes. And they, um, they become happily ever after. Uh, yeah, we should be clear that Dora dies. It's not like their marriage ends. I, I guess I guess that might be clear from the context of it being a story about the 1970s. Right, no, we should clarify that. Yeah, and so, in fact, as she's dying, Dora sort of insinuates that um, she's almost giving David over to Agnes. And so, so Agnes is uh, a bit of like an angelic figure for David. Uh, he, at the end of the novel, a sort of answer to that first sentence, he talks about how Agnes is always pointing upward. Um, and he, in the happiness of a mature marriage in, uh, in life, he has found, it seems what he's looking for. And, you know, unlike the, the flashy Steerforth, right? His, uh, the person he admired at Salem house, uh, another, a real role model for David ten, uh, turns out to be his other friend, Tommy Traddles, who, you know, wasn't quite as smart, wasn't uh, the center of attention, and yet himself finds happiness with uh, Sophie and uh, has some station in life in the end. Yeah, he becomes a judge, no? Or yeah, am I, I think forget, that's right. Am I misremembering that? He becomes a judge. No, I think that I think that is right. He uh, like a, a magistrate or something like that. Do judges also enjoy uh, life tenure in Britain? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I imagine it's a pretty, pretty good gig. Um, yeah. Well, I do know actually. I, you know, I don't know if we should say he's a judge. Uh, I'll have to recall that because um, I know in Britain, right? They distinguish between solicitors and barristers, right? Are there also different kinds of judges, though? Uh, I know yeah, about the UK legal system. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. Um, anyway, it's he, he finds success. So, aside from the the how memorable the characters are, do you have anything in particular that that calls to you about this book, or that there is there anything like you know it's considered to be Charles Dickens' greatest novel, and he is certainly. You know, he's certainly an important uh, novelist. You know, historically speaking, he's he's considered one of the greats. So, do you have a? Well, do yeah. you, I mean, do you, do you have do you have any thoughts about what 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 what's behind this book or why why it's been why so many people love it? Well, you know, it, it, your question actually reminds me of another question you asked on this podcast uh, <laughs> during the Harry Potter episode. You asked, you know, why did everyone love Harry Potter? And I think the answer you gave was that Harry Potter, because it's dealing with fantasy, it offers an escape for people who are living in a disenchanted world. And in contrast, David Copperfield isn't about escapism. It's about a somewhat normal life. But I think one of the things that did attract uh, people to Harry Potter um, was that you know the characters were Dickinsonian. And so... In oh Dick- yeah, for sure. I never thought about that, but the Dursleys are like, and she does she does a lot of Dickensian names. Exactly. No, like, it's, it's it's great, but I think that's the point. Is that you know here um, th- there's this question that the novel I think is asking the reader, right? Okay, who is the hero of this story? Right? Is it David? Uh, is you know is it personal agency or is it? Um, uh, other people? Uh, is it ultimately providence, right? And I think there's this tension between his own uh, ambitions and, uh, you know, people like, uh, in, in a perverse way, heap are, are striving themselves and what society uh, both expects and what place in life it, um, it puts people in. And so I think one of the the solutions to that dilemma, right? Like, is it personal agency or is it social structures? Is it reform? Um, what David Copperfield 
shows in a way is that bourgeois values, even if they are, um, you know, middle class, right? If they're they're not um, in the day to day doing something fantastic like it is occurring is happening in Harry Potter. If you stay true to common sense morality, that that is the sure way. And so, by bourgeois, I don't mean you know a lack of concern for um, you know the higher things in life. But I think the solution is you know David is has done. Um, what he can to build a life that is is true, right, and that and that is good. And he, unlike people who uh, I think were more concerned with propriety, like for example, Steerforth's mother tells Mister Peggy, you know, my son can't marry Emily, right, because of her station. You know, David is someone who, even in his marriage to Dora, which uh, might have been a little bit rash. Uh, he stays loyal, and I think in the end, it it helps him achieve a sort of salvation, or at least he has become the hero of his own life, even if he has other people there along the way. So for me, that's I think what really attracts people to this book is um, both recognizing the characters and uh, and people they've met and in their own lives, but also saying, well, you know, what is this life, right, that um, we are all building, and that uh, in a way, to go back to the autobiographical point that Dickens himself created, right? You know, he in the beginning of these pages, he says the test of whether he's the hero will be in the pages. And so you can ask that same question away of Charles Dickens, who uh, I think was concerned with many of the terrible practices of his day, and yet through his books shows people a different path. Interesting. So it's just, it, it's, it's, what do you mean exactly by bourgeois values? Because I tend to think of Dickens as a very, maybe anti-bourgeois offer, maybe anti-capitalist, maybe that's a better term, but like, he's certainly a critic of, of, uh, owners, right? He's a, he's a critic of the owners of factories, of, of people with capital, right? That's, that's a reoccurring theme with, with him. So I think, when I, you say bourgeois values, I don't. Well, Go ahead. I, I think that we have to be precise here. So it is true that he is a social critic, right? He is constantly talking about, um, you know, all of the externalities and terrible effects of things like, um, you know, the factory system and like child labor, right? Or um, the penal system, and yet I don't think he suggests that people are merely uh, pawns in a wider game. So take Mr. Micawber for example. Mr. Micawber is constantly getting into debt, and yet Dickens, um, in presenting the character, shows that there is moral responsibility there. Um, I think uh, another example would be you know. So Betsy Trotwood, right, who in another sense is also like the essence of the kind of Victorian bourgeois. She's the one who, you know, pays for passage to Australia and uh, is his his savior. So I think what the, the moral is that, you know, people are complicated and that ultimately I think Dickens, you see this in the Christmas Carol, right? He has a belief in the ability of people through moral actions in their day-to-day to turn ordinary lives into something meaningful. And so by bourgeois, I guess what I was saying is that, you know, you and me, for example, at least for me, right, I work as a lawyer. Um, I have, uh, you know, day in and day out, kind of your, your normal uh, job, right? I'm participating in the system, and yet that's not all bad. And I think that's one of the things Dickens is trying to show us. You know, there are good and bad people in every station. And to, again, to draw another Harry Potter quote here, you know, it's our choices that show us what we truly are far more than our abilities. That's, I think, what I meant to say. So it's maybe to paraphrase, it's our, it's our choices that show who we really are, not our... Uh... Not the uh, not the size of our equities portfolio. <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, 
<laughs> um, yeah. But so, you're absolutely right that he is, he is like uh, satirizing and lampooning like some of the facade or um, especially the facade of propriety in Victorian society and pointing to here are all these issues that people who are holding themselves up as, um, you know, the people of society are ignoring. Like, I think another good example of this is um, at the end of the novel, he's talking about uh, people who he has um, have been part of his story. And, you know, one character, Julia, he, he talks about how she is now part of society and he says it in a negative way. So I think you do get uh, this view that, you know, true society lies in the kind of society that uh, was found at at Yarmouth in the book, right? Right. Where you have Peggy and uh, Mr. Peggy and Mrs. Gummidge and where they're living in the ship's hull. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, you know, I think some of the, the, uh, you know, it's not as if everyone with money is bad. Like his aunt uh, Trotwood is is not considered. Uh, I wouldn't say she's a villain in the book by any stretch. And Andy Wickfield is, you know, even though he's not, I wouldn't say he's depicted admirably. He's more ambiguous, right? I think that's uh, right. I think that's the point: is that these are real characters that you might encounter. I mean, everybody has the the capacity for good or for evil, and every day. Um, you know, that choice runs through every human heart. Okay. Yeah. And so the point being is, okay, yes, David is in many ways in this novel, a, uh, a pawn in a system, right? He is sent into the factories. He's, uh, shuttled here and there, um, to different well, schools. And yet he, he finds something of his own as well. Just that David, you know, he retains loyalty too to people from the past, right? Um, like the Macabers, um, like Mr. Peggotty, uh, and I, the, the, you know that is seen as a virtue. Um, just because he's rising in station doesn't mean that it's the moral thing to just cast people away. Sure. Yeah, and and you know, I, there is definitely. Uh, some parallels to Dickens' own life, where he began his life in uh, not so great circumstances. I think his, I think the the father figure here. So Dickens wasn't. Uh, he did have a father, right? He so that, that's the parallel breaks down a little bit. But Mister Micawber is, I would say, is probably the. I would say that he's probably Dickens' father, who I know had his own debt problems and was not, you know, necessarily the most. Uh, responsible on top of a guy i think that's absolutely right so and so you see dickens in this book recognizing the good and the bad there right he's con- he's conflicted he recognizes what this has done to macabre's family and yet he recognizes that there's some good there as well yeah so uh, you know it's a rise from dishonesty um yeah it's it's just that he has an issue. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you know, Dickens. I wonder. You know, he comes up. He had two wives, but his his first wife didn't die. He uh, he dumped her for a seventeen year old actress. I did not uh, know that. Uh oh. <laughs> you did not know that. Yeah, that that was a thing. Yeah. Um, so well, you know, he he he. You know, he became quite famous. Um, it's. Uh, <laughs> You know. yeah, to me, like there's a little bit of a tension there with the, <laughs> the moral you see in um, David Copperfield. But can, you it, it, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. I think one of the things that David Copperfield is for Dickens and for us, it's, it's a hope, right? Because there's still this question, like, will he turn out to be the hero of his own life? And um, there isn't an, like, a straightforward answer to that question. It's it's something that we have to determine for ourselves by looking at the pages, and so I think likewise with Dickens, um, that uh, anecdote you just recounted, um, I maybe the the way it's 
presented analogically in this book suggests his own sort of uh, ambiguity, maybe, regarding that incident in his own life. Obviously, I'm just speculating here, but uh, it seems that it's presented in a different way in the novel. Sure. Well, you know, it's, 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 I think somehow it's, it's almost, (laughs) this is going to be terrible, but I I think it's almost as if he, some of the parts of the novel are are as he wished his life had gone. Right. I I think, you know, I, I sort of read it as like, he kind of wanted like a moral way out of this marriage. Right. There was this other person he was drawn to, uh, who just happened to be a much younger woman. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, if your wife's still alive, that's inconvenient. You have to you have to either uh, stay true to your wife and not experience this new person, or you have to betray your wife and betray who you think you are and who you'd like to be. Yeah, I think yeah, maybe maybe in some ways then that's a, a flaw in the the novel in that there isn't really a hard, hard choice there, right? It's somewhat convenient that Dora um, kicks the bucket. Yeah, I mean, uh, sadly, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, if this were written later in history, maybe Dora would be alive, right? Right. The 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 story would would involve a divorce or an affair instead of a death. Right, and yeah, I think that would totally change the heart of this novel, right, and what it's ultimately about. Right. I mean, David, it's easier to see David Copperfield as the hero of his own story when he's a successful widower, as opposed to a man who becomes a success and then dumps his first wife. Right. Right. Who uh, (laughs) stuck with him while he was climbing up the ladder. Um, Yeah. Though it is interesting. I mean, even Dora, right? Um, You noted that she is the daughter of his employer, she's she is a way of advancing his station. Uh, I don't think that's why David marries her in the novel. He's smitten, but it, it is true that uh, she is above him, at least when they first encounter one another. I mean, I do think it's very clear, if anything, that he is just infatuated with Dora, and that's why he marries her. Well, why do you think he's in love with Dora? And why does he marry her rather than Agnes? Well, I think Agnes has always been sort of a a friend. Um, And I think he is just infatuated. Like from the moment he lays eyes on her, frankly, um, you know, she has, but like against his better judgment, uh, he, I think just decides to go through with it because she has this dog Jip and she calls David Doty. Uh, it's it's you know she's like a little bit. Uh, yeah, that was weird. I like was it is that weird just in the context of now or was that would have that been weird in the 19th century? I think that Dickens is presenting maybe in an exaggerated way, but someone we have all met, which is that person who, uh, you know, might is very chatty. Uh, but maybe not a person of real, real substance. And but I think one of the things that is interesting about um, Dora is that she actually too has a sort of redemptive moment, and she she recognizes that there's sort of a disparity of of purpose in the marriage, and when she dies, this is why I think she sort of preemptively blesses um, Agnes and David's relationship. Disparity of purpose. What do you, what do you, what do you mean by that exactly? So after they marry, David and Dora have instances in which they are thinking about things differently. And, uh, and Dora will, will say something like, Oh, this is, you know, you're, this is too hard for me or something like that. And we go play with the dog. And I think David comes to terms with loving her for who she is. And even while uh, the two of them 
are, are recognizing that they, they, I think they both have different things they're ultimately looking for in a way. That's what I mean by disparity of purpose. Like they're, it's it's not a marriage of true equality, it seems, and yet uh, they are loyal to one another, and so there's an equality in that fact. Yeah, it's just like think of me as your child bride. I mean, like how weird is that shit? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if that, I wonder if that hit different when it was initially published. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah. It's, Whoa. It came across not with any kind of like I I would imagine that the connotation was a little bit more, oh, she's somewhat um you know, she's like the dog chip, right? Where you love the dog, uh everyone's very affectionate, but the this this is also a uh, disturbing metaphor. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I guess what I mean is that I don't think it's and it was meant to be an inappropriate metaphor in any way, right? It's just yeah. showing her immaturity more than anything, and that in a way that's one of the reasons why David is attracted to her. I think that he she's fun, right? And she's someone that he can kind of forget about the humdrum of life with and that's one of the reasons he falls for yeah i guess when i was re- i was reading it i was the whole entire time i was like why aren't you why aren't you marrying agnes but well, I, obviously it stacks the deck a little bit right like this this book was written um in installments uh and, but i think that there is a structure to it right that from the beginning agnes is presented as someone who has always been loyal uh, to David, um, and she sees the best in him as well. Um, for for example, you know she sees him uh, like with Steerforth, and I think they're carousing. But she, she, you know, she doesn't see it as um, something that's unforgivable or that makes him a bad person. She has so much hope for David, and so. Throughout the novel, there are these hints of this is really the person that he's he's meant to be with. And yet, the reason that is, I think, is is because of her goodness. Uh, this is why, you know, the novel, as I said, closes with these lines of, you know, when he he's sitting around the fire and he looks at Agnes and he hopes that he will always find her near him pointing upward. And, you know, different scholars have interpreted that in different ways, but, um, you know, she had pointed upward when she came down uh, after Dora had passed away and like told him that that's where she, she was. And so there's a sense in which, um, you know, she's point that there was an instance in which she pointed upward saying, look, Dora has died, but, you know, pointing upwards to what is really important in life. Like what's this all about? And so there's a maturity there that was, was not present um, throughout all, all of David's life. Right. And that he's like, he's helping to, or he's, he's becoming more fully mature in part through her influence. Wait, so how, how, how can you, can you explain that a little more? I, I didn't quite, <laughs> I don't quite agree with that, but like I, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Sure. So Agnes is someone who has always been a close friend, right? Right. Uh, she has always seen the best in David. Um, she, I, th- I think, has always quietly um, been there. Uh, and that she sort of has an unrequited love for David for years, but and never tells him. But she does help him like through his infatuation and marriage with Dora. Is it, um, you know, not in again, not in uh, a way that oversteps, but you know, he can turn to to Agnes um, at a time when he's struggling to, I, I guess, make this relationship work, and Dora is dying, right, and so. Over the years, David realizes that he has feelings for her. And I think it's uh, what I'm saying is that because of her patience, um, he helps 
him realize his maturity. So in, in by right. So by I guess I guess you what I disagree, you disagree maybe. No, it's not that I disagree. It's just that I'm, I'm like I'm trying to look look for the way that David Copperfield matured or grew in the book. Um, you know he he you know he does certainly like rise in his station in life. Right, he goes from sort of an unfortunate station to a successful writer, much like Dickens. But I, I'm trying to. Well, I think for one, he is more wise uh, to the world, right? Um, he was taken in by Steerforth, and that proves to be a mistake. Um, he, uh, I think, recognizes that that people are complicated, uh, and I, I think it, it's it's just a sense of maturity. Uh, that's what he, I, I think achieves right so who knows i don't know if that means he's he's morally better uh, necessarily but you see this development from child to adult sure yeah well yeah you, you know i do kind of think that agnes this is gonna come off wrong but agnes is like somewhat of a male fantasy not like in a not like in a like a sexual way but like in um like this is the person who's like she's into him from the start. She's unfailingly loyal. She sticks around through his marriage, and she's there. She's there. She's there for him when his first wife finally dies. Though you know, it's well, it's, people have criticized her character for precisely this reason, right? She's just like this perfect person, his angel. Um, is it realistic? And in my view, the hope is that nor in our, you know, it, she she represents what, like the ideal of what um, normal people can become because she's not she's not um, someone who just, you know, is, is a complete pushover. Um, she she recognizes the danger of heap. Um, but she kind of holds things um, to herself, um, and she, she she has a wisdom about her that I don't think is unrealistic. Uh, in some ways, like to your point, I think like you are you could just as easily say like Dora is this fantasy, right? Because it's like, well, she's you know like the the perfect little person and. Um, doesn't really have a mind about her, but, and so it kind of depends like what you're looking for. I guess your point is like, is it realistic that, uh, you know, she seemingly has no faults and she's just like out there and like waiting for him, even though he messed up that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, she, like if she's so great, like there's gotta be someone else out there for her. But on, on the other, like, you know, you could say that she's sort of like this, idealized virginal virgin virgin virginal excuse me i can't talk virginal version of of a woman and then you you, then you get like strong manic pixie dream girl energy from dora yeah (laughs) but i think this is actually a a great thing to raise because if if the argument is well why is dickens great it's because the characters are true to life then is that true right um i think one thing you can say is that the characters are true to life in a certain sense, right? But is it really true that all the villains have names like Murdstone and Heat? <laughs> Maybe not, right? Um, sometimes they have more uh, attractive or uh, normal names, right? And maybe sometimes the good people are, you know, are are, are not always uh, what they seem to be. But I do think he gets at that too, right? Because I think Betsy Trotwood is a perfect example, right? When she you begin the novel. She comes in guns blazing. Uh, she she wanted a, a daughter or a a niece, and it, that's not what David is. And yet she actually becomes his you know his guardian and uh, one of his I think most loyal um, relations in the story. 
Yeah, and I would say uh, Steerforth is, is definitely a bad dude, but he is sort of like a good guy name, right? Like James Steerforth. Right. And so I think you get all types, right? Like some people, sometimes people are exactly what they seem to be. And other times uh, you need to see below the surface and, and, and learn. And so I think that's actually why I think David does mature, right? Because, um, okay, there are, he, he recognizes that I think there's good and bad in all of us. And um, I, I think like another example of this is uh, the character of Emily, right? So again, Emily was, uh, had, had been living in, in the boat with Mr. Peggotty and she, she runs off with Steerforth, right? But at the end, she too... Um, Wait, she's the one who becomes a prostitute, right? Yeah. So she, yeah, so she goes down um, a, a bad path and yet she has a lot of uh, wonderful qualities and she's seen as a victim um, because, and, and ultimately, but though she herself becomes the hero of her own life because when they move to Australia, she starts anew and, um, you know, they get, Agnes and David get a visit uh, at the end from Mr. Peggotty. And he reports that, you know, Emily is the kindest, uh, you know, she is, you know, the, the person who is constantly attending on everyone else. And she has really grown into her own, even while uh, there's, there's still a sadness there. And I think that, um, you know, the weight of the past and how it um, affects your life um, versus, you know, breaking from the past and forming new beginnings in a place like Australia, that's, that's a, a theme of the novel. Because I think Mr. Peggy, you know, he describes Emily says, I don't know, I see her every day don't know but um you know he sees her worn soft sorrowful blue eyes delicate face and quiet so there, there's a sort of um there's still she she is happy but there it doesn't mean that what happens uh doesn't have any effect right my point is that uh so two things right one people are are not caricatures right and they have, uh, they can they can redeem themselves. Uh, you know, Mr. Micawber, right, becomes a very successful man in Australia, Australia, right? And yeah, against, you, against all odds, yeah. Right, right. But I think the point is, okay, so that's that's something, but there is still the weight of the past. And so you have this tension where, um, okay, there's a new life in Australia, right? There's a new life say, for David with Agnes, uh, beyond Dura, right? And yet those things, those memories still play a role. And uh, I think that, you know, an, another example of this, uh, David runs into uh, Mrs. Steerforth and uh, Rosa Dartle, like, you know, near the end, you know, here and there. And there's a moment where, uh, you know, he he sees them still bickering about their love for Steerforth, and and so the things that have happened, they still play a role in in, in you know David's life and and in all our lives. But uh, it doesn't mean that you still can't have uh, real successes and real good things that come about. I guess maybe what what would you say to someone who hasn't read the novel yet and if you were going to try to sell them on the book? Great question. Because you do have an uphill battle. <laughs> it's a 900-page book. Um, I would say that if you are looking for a story that in presenting someone else's story to you can help you figure out your own way in the world, this is the book. And you will not forget the characters. You, you'll see them in your, in your life, right? We've, we've all met uh, someone who isn't responsible with money. We've all met uh, the person that you might be attracted to, and then you realize, well, there's not a lot of substance there. 
And so it's a very, very memorable story. It's also a very funny story. Uh, all right, all right, all right. I got to do this, Rob. So who is the who is the steer forth of your life? Uh, not that I, I'm kidding. You know, you can't, I guess you can't name names, but have you, uh, have you met a steer forth? Do you have someone in mind? I think that there are people that are not quite what they seem to be. And people that you think are really cool because that's what Steerforth is to David, right? And then you see them do something and you realize, oh, that kind of person's kind of a jerk. Um, that's, the, I think, the Steerforth of my life. Like I've, I definitely have met a couple people like that. So I would assume the Agnes of your life is your lovely wife. <laughs> yeah, I would say that for sure. I mean, I don't want to um, put a sort of, you know, like, one dimensionality on her yeah exactly but yeah. I, I do think that um there is truth there i mean uh, my wife and i knew each other for some time before we got married but really yeah so um, it was a little bit of an agnes situation yeah we were friends first and i think that it it did take time uh to realize truly what was there obviously there there's always a little something right <laughs> yeah sure sure yeah. Um, is there uh, is there a Dora Spenlow in your of your life? <laughs> uh, I'll take the fifth on that. The, the <laughs> at, fifth. Least, at least not that I that I married. <laughs> that you married. Well, yes, yes, I know that. Um, so, is there is there a Mister Macabre of your life? Oh, thank goodness, no. At least not yet. No, no, uh, no, no spendthrift father figure. <laughs> no, no. That's- no. That's a, a lucky circumstance, but you know these characters come back, so you never know. You never know. You know maybe you're going to be the Mister Copper of somebody else's life. Ever thought about I that? Right? I hope not. You hope not. Yeah. Um, do you have a, a an aunt Trotwood in your life? Ooh, you know, I actually would say uh, both of my aunts, um, uh, the, my father's siblings. Uh, have been wonderful um, to me this past year, especially, you know, I got married in the midst of the pandemic and they uh, showed up right outside the church when we were not expecting. So yes, I have wonderful aunts and on my mother's side as well. Nice. That was awesome. Mertstone. Any Mertstone in your life? I hope not. (laughs) No, no. I uh, (laughs) was not, uh, was not orphaned. So that's, that's good. Well, I don't mean a literal evil stepfather. Right, right. <laughs> yes, so someone who uh, sent me off to a uh, boarding school where they were like smacking the children and then like sent me off to a warehouse. No, I haven't had that luckily. Yeah, that hasn't happened to you. Yeah. All right. Um, well, you, you know what I meant. Mertsto- oh, oh, is there a Mr. Dick? <laughs> what are you lying keep? Those are both good questions. Yeah, it's very good questions. I think that I actually do have, um, I have had Mr. Dix in my life, uh, including the way da- uh, David uh, interacts with him. Because I think one of the things that's great about the novel, you know, Dickens knows that the, the reader is looking at this from a more, like an adult perspective, right? But he's still speaking through the eyes of uh, David and, or the voice of David. And so, for example, there's a, uh, a funny conversation where Mr. Murdstone is talking to his friends about David. And so to, to ensure that David doesn't know what he's talking about, he, he refers to him as Brooks of Sheffield. And, uh, you know, David doesn't know who this Brooks is, but the reader definitely does. And in the same way, you know, David doesn't, I think, quite understand early on that Mr. Dick uh, has a mental issue. Uh, I, when I was working on Capitol Hill, uh, I remember had a number of conversations with a a guy who thought he was an exorcist and wanted us to hire him to sit in the chamber uh, to exorcise the members of the other political party took me some time to quite realize something wasn't there. Uh, and so, you know, it was a, 
Maybe not the quite kind of wait, 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 wait a second. How did that take time? Well, <laughs> he sounded extreme. He had to be like Mr. Dick, you know, he was he, he was reasonable, he was knowledgeable about certain things, but then every once in a while, like he'd say something, and you're like, huh. And then then that's when I realized. <laughs> you have led a more interesting life than I have. <laughs> that is all I can say. I can't hmm. Um Yeah, I can't Good question, Mr. Dick. Um, yeah, do you have a Mr. Dick in your life? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I don't think I've got no. Um, but I do. I do. I will say this. You know, another way of looking at Mr. Dick is not through the lens of insanity, but through the lens of someone who actually does teach David the value of. Every person, um, and, and you know, there's this question: like, why is um, does Betsy Trotwood rely on Mister Dick's advice, right? Why why is he around for so long? And I think what David learns through the experience of uh, meeting and getting to know Mister Dick is that you know, Mister Dick brings a great deal of joy to people's lives, and he has a there's there's something about him that's incredibly endearing and so it, it, it mr dick in your life might be that person who isn't quite on the same say like mental playing field or uh you know you know it, maybe it, it is like a, a kid or someone but who uh makes you realize the value of lives and of um, meeting people where they're at. Yeah. Like the wise eccentric. So yeah, you know who I definitely have had in my life. I've definitely had a steer forth in my life. Oh, I am. I am prone to steer forth like man crushes. Uh, (laughs) Are you now? (laughs) I am. I am for sure. There's no question about that. Um, Well, because I think, uh, I don't know. I think there is something to the uh, charisma of uh, evil's probably a too strong of a word, but I'll just use it for bat- lack of a better one. Like there's a certain charisma to, to people who are maybe a little more on the amoral side, right? There's a right. There's there's something there is something attractive about that. There's just like you know, like a glamour of evil. Yeah, the glamour of evil. I think that's the perfect way of of putting it. And I, I think that. It's it's that glamour, really, more than anything, in this novel. That David- I, I have had macabres. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, yes, and like, without getting into it, like relatively close to me. Got it. Yep. Um. So yeah, I guess I can see. Like, this is a fun game, actually. Oh, you love those. Um, you still love those people, right? Just as yeah, like- of course, yeah, 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 of course. Um. Well. I guess we'll we'll leave it with that for the uh, the listeners. Read the novel, and then you can play and get some of your friends to read the novel, and then you can play which uh, which, which which David are you the hero of the story? Are you David Copperfield, or are you one of the uh, one of the character actors? I mean, that's a tough question because you I you know or one the, of the other heroes of the story if if there are right is yeah. is, is that station held by anybody else? As Dickens asks. No, I know, I know, but it's it's uh right. It's like you can of course take the question that opens the novel and apply it to your own life. And I have to say, sometimes I feel more like a character actor than a reading. <laughs> right? Um, don't we all? <laughs> don't we all? Yeah. Uh, th- and then there's uh, let's see. Yeah. So I I guess uh, yeah. You know, it's an interesting. <laughs> There's there's sort of an interesting concept. I think we all do it to an extent um, when we're, uh, you know, you and I have both been to law school. So we've been through a couple iterations of this process where when you apply to schools and when you write these essays, you have to engage in a certain amount of self-novelization, right? You're telling a story about yourself to sell yourself to these schools and, you know, and, 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 uh, Dickens kind of did it, you know, very quite literally. He novelized his own life 
So this is like he told a particular story about his life, which which isn't always true to life. You know, he's rubbed away some of the, uh, you know, some of the the rough spots, <laughs> some of the blemishes in the in the story. But, but you know, I think the truth is that that you know, for better or for worse, your life isn't actually a novel, right? You know, like you can. When you write a memoir or you write an autobiographical novel, you can sort of beat it into novel form. You can beat it into story form. But I'm not sure. It's certainly not how I experience life in the day to day. It's only in hindsight that you can turn it into a story. And when you do that, you're inevitably leaving much of the truth out and you're only seeing things from your perspective. So from your perspective, you might you might be... Uh, I don't know. You might be an Agnes or a David Copperfield, but from, from someone else's perspective, you might be a Steerforth or you might be a, a Murdstone or, you know, you know, it's, do you see what I'm saying? I do. And I actually think that Dickens probably recognizes that tension because at the beginning he, you know, he in some ways conflates the word life with the novel itself, right? to begin my life with the beginning of my life. And uh, I, I think the, the, the lesson, though, is that for those of us who are not novel, um, writing our lives, right? Um, so, you know, to quote Thoreau, my life has been the poem I would have writ, but I could not both live and utter it. And so it's, it is the story, right, that, that tells for other people, right, the people we experience day in and day out, the so-called, you know, readers of the, of the life of the person, right, whether we are or are not the hero. Hey, everyone, this is Swampy, and I just wanted to make sure that you subscribe to The Brothers F on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, if you have Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, make sure to follow us there, too. See you next time on The Brothers F. Let's, let's call it a wrap there. We'll, we'll keep some of that ending stuff in there. I'll, I'll edit it to make it sound smarter than we are. <laughs> then, um, Please do.